The unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect truth is seldom met with, even in a hundred thousand myriad kalpas. Now we can see and hear it, remember and accept it. I vow to make the Buddha's truth one with myself. Homage to the Buddha, homage to the Dharma, homage to the Sangha. Again, so good to see so many of you here today. Um, And we've just had a wonderful introductory weekend retreat, which we're just finishing up this morning. Um, And we've just celebrated a transfer of merit ceremony. Uh, For those who don't know, we celebrate these quite regularly um, as we like to dedicate the merit of our chanting, our practicing together, our wishes for loving kindness for all beings. Um, And in fact... um, these themselves are acts of charity. These, you know, being willing to share the merit of our practice is an act of generosity and charity, which I want to talk a bit more about today. And in fact, it's our practice to dedicate the merit of all of our ceremonies. You might have noticed after our morning service, our evening service, and so on, we dedicate the merit of our chanting, our reciting. Um, for the benefit of all beings, that they may all realize the truth. So we do this with everything, and our daily practice of meditation, our Dharma study, following the precepts for the benefit of and the enlightenment of everyone and everything. So that's a very important part of our Soto Zen practice and of Bodhisattva training. We share the blessings and joy arising from our practice without reservation in all directions. As I said, it's an aspect of doing bodhisattva practice, not just doing the training for our own well-being and our own enlightenment, but always opening it up to all in need, whoever and wherever they might be. Uh, We do that even with little, when we go to the bathroom, when we brush our teeth, we have verses, the monks certainly do this, where we dedicate the merit of even these very mundane acts that we do all day long and every day. that they may benefit others in some way. Obviously, if we don't take care of ourselves, we can't be a benefit to others. So um, this reflection brings me to one of my favorite and very essential teachings of our serene reflection meditation tradition of Buddhism, which I'd like to talk about further today then, and also in particular to introduce to those of you who are with us for the first time for this weekend's introductory retreat who might not have heard of this teaching. And it's specifically the teaching of the four wisdoms, or um, sometimes, as Dogen calls them also, the four exemplary acts or practices of a bodhisattva. And he has a chapter on this um, in his large work, the Shobogenzo, which are transcriptions of his talks that his disciples transcribed back in the 1200s. We have an English translation, a wonderful translation. Um, And, of course, pieces of that chapter have been put together in um, a writing called the Shushogi, which many of you have seen, I think, in Reverend Master Jiu's books and his eternal life. And it's a wonderful, concise compilation of Dogen's essential teachings, really essential Buddhist teachings and uh, of our essential practice. So, great Master Dogen, and I think you've all heard of him. If you haven't, he is 
you know, again, lived in the 1200s, a Japanese monk who went to China to find the true Dharma um, at a young age, awakened to the truth, found who he felt was his true master there, his true teacher, and then eventually brought the teaching back to Japan and started teaching in the late, you know, well, mid-1200s, I guess it was, um, opened a few monasteries, and of course his monastery still exists, his main monastery, Aheji, still exists and is one of the head temples of the Soto Zen tradition. And we translate Soto Zen as serene reflection meditation into English. So Dovin says the four wisdoms, charity, tenderness, benevolence, and sympathy are the means we have of helping others and represent the bodhisattva's aspirations. I know some of you have heard this many times, so please bear with me, but perhaps I can open a new window onto this teaching as well. These are considered to be the signs of enlightenment as well in Buddhism, and also they are one of the ways that we can check if our meditation, our mindfulness practice, and our training in the precepts are going in the right direction. The Buddha called them, in his time, uh, the four ways of embracing others. Very similar teaching, which has been passed down through the ages and worded slightly differently, but same thing. Um, And so there are timeless practices and virtues needed as much in our world today as they were 2,500 years ago in Shakyamuni Buddha's time. So there's, um, it works, and it always has worked and always will work. So it's wonderful to hear of something that isn't um, limited in terms of its application. For me, it's always interesting that these qualities, charity, tenderness, benevolence, and sympathy, are considered to be wisdoms, Yeah not what many of us would expect to be wisdom. Wisdom, in fact, in Buddhism is compassionate, and true compassion is always wise. So they are called the pillars, the two pillars of Zen, wisdom and compassion, and they are also two sides of the same coin. They're interchangeable, but sometimes we look at them separately to open up our practice, deepen our practice, And these wisdoms express what truly ultimately works universally, you know, and also what leads beings to liberation from suffering. And so for those of you who are here for the introductory retreat, you've had our meditation instruction, you've learned about the precepts. So this is another window into the Dharma where you can check yourself now and then. Um, Am I practicing charity? What about tenderness, benevolence, sympathy? So regarding charity, which Dogen also calls the offering of alms, he says, charity is the opposite of covetousness. We make offerings, although we ourselves get nothing whatsoever. And I'll quote him a bit because I, I can't really find a better way to express this than the way Dogen does. There's no need to be concerned about how small the gift may be so long as it brings true results. For even if it is only a single phrase or verse of teaching, it may be a seed to bring forth good fruit, both now and hereafter. 
he goes on later to say, we must never desire any reward and we must always share everything we have with others. It is an act of charity to build a ferry or a bridge, for example, and all forms of industry are charity if they benefit others. So that's Great Master Dogen on charity or almsgiving. So charity, um, the practice of dana, generosity of spirit, uh, those are the first teachings that the Buddha generally presented to um, those who came to him for help, that one has to cultivate a generous heart, first step, in whatever way is possible for one. Reverend Master Kodo um, gave me a nice little story, uh, which I think illustrates charity uh, quite lovely. I hadn't heard of this, but I'll share it with you. Uh, you may have heard of um, Ajahn Sumedho, who is a Thai for a monk, very senior monk in the Thai forest tradition, and um, I think currently living in Thailand, although he's an American monk. Um, and he, uh, in his book, on book on themes for daily practice, relates a little story that's rather lovely. Um, he says, the quality of generosity impressed me very much in Thailand. If I met five little village children and gave one of them a bottle of soda, nine times out of ten, that child would divide the soda with the other children without having to be told. Now, I'd never have done that when I was that age, he says. <laughs> I'd have said, he gave it to me, it's mine. And my sis- if my sister wanted some, I'd say, you can't have any, it's mine. But in Thailand, especially in the rice farming areas that have kept the old values of Thai Buddhism, there's a wonderful sense of sharing that is inculcated in children from the very beginning. They get such joy in sharing a bottle of soda. Even if each child will only get one sip of it, they find it a joyful experience. A little different and wonderful indeed. They really enjoy that one sip. When you contemplate that, you see that it's much more enjoyable to have that one sip than to drink the whole bottle by yourself, not giving any to the others. A very lovely example or illustration of charity that is just can become very natural. And gosh, if we could just uh, nudge ourselves a little more in that direction in our culture, what a difference that would make. And that's part of our practice, both with material things, but also I would say that all of our work, our daily work and our Buddhist practice can become an alms offering. Okay, when we do so wholeheartedly and with presence of body and mind, uh, doing our best in our daily spiritual practice is an offering of alms, is an offering of charity, both to ourselves and to others, which we often don't appreciate. Whenever we sit still within ourselves with something that may be difficult to bear, we've just experienced some loss or a moment of anger or annoyance, irritation, um, or if jealousy arises, or somehow we've become overly greedy about something, if we can step even a little beyond our comfort zone, say let go of a harmful impulse, um, just a little restraint with a negative habit perhaps, these are in fact, to my mind, acts of charity and have, a greater, pos- and have greater positive ramifications than we are often aware of until much later. 
that is my experience. So um, I always encourage people, try to in my talks, to um, encourage people to value those things, not to become proud of yourself, obviously, to do it selflessly, but to um, not to doubt your training. So simply to do what seems, to, seems good to do, uh, restraining what's harmful, doing what's good to do, extending help to others, even when we don't feel like doing so at the time, we are manifesting the wisdom of charity. So it's not necessarily the great heroic acts, although there are many examples of people in the world doing wonderful, charitable, generous things, heroic or everyday things, which often don't make the headlines, of course, of the news. And charity, I think, also includes being willing to receive with a pure heart as well. What we need in life, or good teaching, or some sort of help, whether we think we need it or not, um, to be able to take it in, to be able to receive it, to bow to it, is an act of charity, I think. There's a flow of offering alms, of giving and receiving that we enter into if we're doing this practice well. It's not ultimately just about someone having or owning something and bestowing it on others. It's much deeper than that ultimately. Here's a lovely little example of how this might work. Another example from um, the teachings of a, a, a Japanese master who died, I think, he died in 1959 or 60s, um, who was a very important, influential Soto Zen master, Zen master who was teaching after World War II in Japan. Uh, in a passage of his teachings about blessings, he says, Heaven and earth give themselves. Air, water, plants, animals, and humans give themselves to each other. It is in this giving themselves to each other, and he's hyphenated that, it is in this giving themselves to each other that we actually live. Whether you appreciate it or not, it is true, he says. He says, the world in which people give and receive things without saying, give it to me, or I'm entitled to it, is, truly, is the truly beautiful world. It differs from the world of scrambling things. It is vast and boundless. So a very inspiring quote there. And it also, when I, as we were chanting this morning, the dedication of merit, I thought, well, that's very much an expression of this sort of thing as well, isn't it? Um, yeah. May kindness find reward. May all who sorrow leave their grief and pain. May this boundless light break the darkness of their endless night. And so on. Because our hearts are one, this world of pain turns into paradise. Can that really happen? Well, just give it a try and see what happens. See how differently you feel and how differently your life might become. <clears throat> Regarding tenderness, uh, or also called <clears throat> the wisdom of tenderness, is also called uh, kindly speech. Excuse me. <coughs> And it's to do in particular with how we communicate with people through speech, but it could be written or otherwise communicating. Uh, again, Dogen says, to behold all beings with the eye of compassion 
and to speak kindly to them is the meaning of tenderness. If one would understand tenderness, one must speak to others whilst thinking that one loves all living things as if they were one's own children. By praising those who exhibit virtue and feeling sorry for those who do not, our enemies become our friends, and they who are our friends have their friendship strengthened. This is all through the power of tenderness. When everyone speaks kindly to another, their face brightens and their heart is warmed. If a kind word be spoken in their absence, the impression will be a deep one. Tenderness can have a revolutionary impact upon the mind of man, humankind. So there you have it. Very profound teaching. Um, May seem like a tall order, but guess what? Give it a try again. See what happens. It works. Um, We just, uh, the monks just saw a a movie recently, which we do once in a while, called, just the title of it, I think, was just Dog. Maybe you've seen it, some of you. Uh, I found it quite moving, and it's about um, um, an Iraqi combat veteran who um, has had a brain injury and isn't able to fight anymore, but he's um, wanting to get back into combat. He's obviously got PTSD uh, suffering from that as well. And he's been given the job of delivering um, a combat dog named Lulu, German Shepherd looked like, um, to the funeral of a friend right across the country. So he has to drive across the country with this dog. And this dog is um, affected by every possible trauma related to combat. So it's considered very vicious and unmanageable. And after the funeral, the funeral is for the, the person who worked with this dog. So they felt it was important for the dog to be at the funeral. Anyway, after the funeral, this fellow, this vet, veteran, is supposed to take the um, the dog to be euthanized. Okay. So he starts out the journey with this dog who has to have a muzzle on and is vicious and get anyway. He has all these adventures. They get into all kinds of trouble, but <laughs> as time goes by, um, somehow he gets to like the dog. But interestingly enough, on the subject of tenderness and kindly speech, at one point they he ends up um, by accident in the home of. Um, I guess some aging hippies, as as we might call ourselves. <laughs> some of us have hair, some don't. <laughs> um, and uh, the woman, uh, and and he finds the dog sitting next to this woman, and she's feeding it, little, you know, treats out of her hand, <clears throat> which the dog would never do with him, or anybody else he's seen, no muzzle on or anything. And uh, he says, how, how, "How did you do that?" And she just said, "Well, I've just been speaking kindly to him, you know." Uh, to her, it's a, a female dog, and it wasn't very just a nice little example of um, a creature that's considered quite vicious and suddenly turning to be quite sweet in the um, presence of somebody who knows how to communicate with something deeper in the dog. Now, I don't say I'm not suggesting you try this in your own home with a you know I mean be careful how you do this, but nonetheless it is an interesting illustration because eventually. That's what happens with the dog. It completely changes, and the, the veteran just doesn't have the heart in the end to send it to be euthanized and ends up keeping it, and it helps him heal and helps the dog heal, and it be, the dog becomes a very sweet, 
friend, of course, and he needs to do some training with it. Interesting story about how, to my mind, and a good example of, of how tenderness works. You know? There are, I think, many examples of that, and hopefully we are applying these understandings in our world more and more with how we treat people who are traumatized. And animals, yeah. I was thinking even the, the cat that I look after, Mitra, responds to kind, sweet words. If, if I speak to her very sweetly, she will look at me and close her eyes and purr blissfully. Like she, she, you know, she feels it. She feels the tone of voice, right? So it's not, if, you know, if animals can do it, maybe we can appreciate it too. <laughs> Sometimes I have to say no to her, on the other hand, but I try to do so um, and not, in a way that I'm not acting out of frustration. Uh, if need be, I'll wait a bit. Uh, or if I have to do it, I just try to train myself to uh, come more from a place of stillness and tender, loving care. And if I sometimes blow it, I find myself apologizing to her. <laughs> but she's a pretty good cat. Um, so again, even when it's necessary for us to point out a, a difficulty someone is having or to admonish a child or, say, um, an employee or whatever, um, we can restrain Again, the snarky or spiteful remark, right? And go within and find a kinder response. Sometimes we have to wait a while before we respond, and that's better than the the unkind response. Um, wait a while until our emotional reaction has passed, and um, that in itself, I think, that training ourselves in that way is an act of tenderness we find a kinder, more appropriate response will eventually arise out of that. Sometimes we just don't make it, and that's okay too. We, that's part of our training. We have to have compassion for ourselves. But to keep going in that direction and to trust the teaching. Yeah. And, you know, I was re- reflecting on all of these wisdoms. Um, how do they apply to ourselves? You know? How do we talk to ourselves? Do we speak tenderly to ourselves? Sometimes maybe, but I think a lot of the time many of us are quite harsh to us towards ourselves. Are we speaking with harsh judgment or criticism? Um, you know, sometimes there can be this ongoing beratement of ourselves as a sort of default state of mind. Um, does that sound familiar? Yeah. Especially if we feel like we're not quite, you know, meditating long enough, often enough, not keeping the precepts as well as we should, not getting everything that we should do done as perfectly or as timely or as well. It's all these things. I mean, I have it. You know, I'm training with that. Um, so it's not a matter of praising ourselves, of course, but just being mindful and not buying into the negative self-talk. Just to see it as a wave of thought and feeling and let it pass, to know that that's not all there is. I have to. I find sometimes I have to deliberately rise above a negative train of thought towards myself, just grasp my will, turn away from the doubt, and just go on quickly with faith no matter what. And things eventually switch. It's like, oh, okay, next minute something else happens and it's gone. Uh, so letting go in that manner, we have to just do that over and over if that's something we suffer from. If there's truly something that I need to take to heart, for example, a criticism, a uh, or a helpful instruction about something that I need to change about myself, that's a little different sort of thing. Um, it's good to look at it. You know, I look, do my best to look at it and put it into practice eventually. Um, 
but to not allow our minds to constantly ruminate over these things. I think we have uh, some control over that. And again, that's one of the purposes of meditation is to sit still with these things and to see how they are just trains of thought that arise, abide, and pass. Sometimes they're very convincing and um, you know hard to, hard to um, bear, but that's fundamentally all it is. Of course, we may need to talk to somebody when something like that's going on as well. I believe this is also very much an aspect of the practice of this wisdom of tenderness, applying that towards ourselves, or sometimes refer to it as uh, turning the stream of compassion within. So good to be mindful of that. So regarding the next wisdom, um, Great Master Dogen um, says that, which is benevolence, Uh, Great Master Dogen says, If one creates wise ways of helping beings, whether they be in high places or lowly stations, one exhibits benevolence. And later in the paragraph he says, The stupid, or it is foolish, to believe that one will lose something if we give help to others. For this is completely untrue. Benevolence helps everyone, including oneself, being a law of the universe. So in charity, we're, we're you know giving something. You know, so there's a sense of concreteness. With benevolence, it's almost a little more like we're giving ourselves over to something much bigger than ourselves that is just a universal. That is an aspect of. Um, something greater than ourselves that um, we can resist. We do resist it, but it always brings us suffering. But if we can let go and and not resist it so much, we find all kinds of creative and wise ways of being of benefit to others. And people are exhibiting this all the time in the world. All kinds of things are going on. Again, these stories don't always make the the news headlines, but if you look more deeply... um, and pay attention to those around you, you'll see this happening all the time. Of course, some of you have heard about the Good News Network. Sometimes some of us look at that just to balance out the, the kind of stories that we're reading on the news. And they kind of um, they research and sift through all the major news outlets to find you know, positive, cheering stories. And, uh, and that can be fun. Well, I recently, uh, just as an example, read a story of um, a gentleman who, I think he was Mexican, came to um, uh, the United States, couldn't get a job, ended up being quite depressed and getting onto drugs and decided, okay, quit this. He went back to Mexico. His home place was near the beach somewhere, beautiful beaches. And just as has been happening in Florida, um, these huge amounts of seaweed, sargassum, have been... um, being washed up onto the beaches, miles of it, and and it's really smelly and it doesn't look good and it affects tourism quite seriously. And Anyway, he had a brilliant idea that maybe he could do something with it. And he started a company gradually with one employee and then more employees. Um, And he found a way to manufacture building bricks out of this stuff that nobody wanted, that they wanted to get rid of. Just brilliant. And, and they've been tested. They work. They actually, they're nice brown building blocks. Um, and in fact, his work has been um, 
is registered with the United Nations, is it UNESCO or one of these United Nations agencies that um, publicizes and supports sustainable projects you know, around the world, um, projects regarding sustainability and you know, um, positive to the environment. <clears throat> and once he did pretty well for himself, he began to build, donate and build small homes out of his bricks for people in his area who were too poor to afford a home themselves. Anyway, very cheering story. And I thought, well, that is a nice example of benevolence. And I could quote numerous other stories along those lines where people are converting something that is unwanted into something useful. And, of course, many of them are stories to do with improving our situation with regard to the environment and climate change. So it's worth noting um, many little startups like that around the world that hopefully will take off and get bigger and, and um, we can be more creative with how we make use of our resources. Sorry. Well, just on the subject of benevolence, if you look carefully, you'll see it happening everywhere. Parents with their children, children helping their parents, teachers with students, doctors and nurses with patients, gardeners, those who take care of our earth. Again, just taking care with things. Taking, um, you know, benevolence is um, essentially um, acts of kindness, acts of charity, um, actively putting kindness into practice. And you know what? It might even be better for our economy than some of the things that we think are, <laughs> are, are uh, absolutely necessary in our economy. I read another little story um, on the news of um, just recently, you might have heard of it as well, four children, young children, who um, unfortunately, very sadly, they were in a plane crash, their parent, in the Amazon, over the Amazon, I think the Colombian Amazon. And... Um, the engine failed on the plane, and their parents and the, the pilot were killed. And these four children managed to survive. A 13-year-old, I think, a 9-year-old, and a 3-year-old, and, and an infant, a baby. And um, maybe not quite one-year-old. And they managed to survive 40 days in the Colombian Amazon, in the jungle. Um, and, uh, of course, they were eventually rescued. But in terms of acts of benevolence, I thought, you know... One of the things they said in the story is that their family, these were indigenous, part of an indigenous tribe, uh, group, community. And their family and their community had taught these children at, from a young age what fruits and foods to eat in the jungle, what to avoid, what to do, how to help yourself. Um, and so they managed to, to do it. It's just really quite remarkable. They were found eventually, uh, of course, they'd been searching rescue people and soldiers had been searching for them the whole time. Eventually they had uh, the voice of the grandmother broadcast over the jungle because the kids kept moving, you know, looking for a way out, I suppose, and the grandmother's voice saying, just stay put so that we can find you, and they found them. Very heartwarming story, but also just the benevolence of what we can do for young people, right, or for each other, you know, um, ways of helping us to... Um, survive what would, what would seem impossible to, to many, but you can apply that to very ordinary things in your daily life as well. Think of all the things that 
um, however many difficulties we may have had with our parents, think of all the things they have provided for us that have helped us to be here and find this place and to find the Dharma. Another um, important example in Buddhism is that of, um, in ancient India, the um, King Ashoka was a very important, very renowned king, had a big empire, but he, he started out as a, as a rather cruel person and conquered um, the lands around him, killed a lot of people, and he had a complete conversion. He just was absolutely horrified with, at one point with what he had done, had a complete conversion as it happened to Buddhism at the time and became a very, very benevolent ruler um, setting up um, you know, way stations for travelers, hospitals, schools, uh, giving away you know, um, whatever was needed to people who are poor. Um, it's actually an amazing example for our present culture as to what a good government could do. He's often allotted as um, an example of a benevolent source of governing. Uh, it's a good, interesting story if you ever want to read it. King about King Ashoka, A S A S H O K A. So, and Dogen talks about this in some of his writings that um, if a ruler is, a government is benevolent, they will, their people will be happier. They'll get along better. They'll have a greater population. They will, you know, function better, etc. So, yeah. And being benevolent towards ourselves. What does that mean? Finding wise ways of helping ourselves, right? Of course, actively taking refuge in the Dharma, reading the scriptures and contemplating the scriptures. What an amazing resource, um, I think, is an act of benevolence for ourselves. We need that kind of inspiration on a regular basis. Taking refuge actively with the Sangha, seeking out good spiritual friends to practice with, to consult with, to to be with. Yeah. Doesn't mean that we reject others, but just to recognize our with humility our needs and our limitations and and be willing to take refuge. I think is an act of benevolence towards ourselves. Here we are doing it now with each other. Yeah. And I'm just as inspired by you being here as anything else. Um so the last wisdom is called sympathy. And again, I'm going to read Dogen's little verse on this because it's one of the most beautiful things to me, for me in our uh, Buddhist uh, writings. He says, If one can identify oneself with that which is not oneself, one can understand the true meaning of sympathy. Take, for example, the fact that the Buddha appeared in the human world in the form of a human being. Sympathy does not distinguish between oneself and others. There are times when the self is infinite and times when this is true of others. Sympathy is as the sea in that it never refuses water from whatsoever source it may come. All waters may gather and form only one sea. So, how does this apply to our training? Well, the, the thing that comes up for me as most important is not judging ourselves and others. Uh, judgment, Dogen warns about this over and over. If we give rein to the discriminatory mind, the mind that judges um, everything as good or bad or useful or not and so on, um, 
is one of the ways that we block the flow of this water, this water of the spirit, um, this sense of um, being at one with all things. There's a nice little children's story I used to use when I did children's classes, Dharma classes for kids about a little stream. And, well, the short of it is that this is little stream tumbling down the mountain and all of its adventures as it goes down the mountain. And it's struggling along and it's picking up rocks and plants and all this stuff along the way. Um, and it's, um, it's sort of struggling along. But then eventually it begins to realize that... Um, it's not alone, and it comes to the sea. And um, so the, all the things that it gathers up are like the karma that we get, you know, collect in our lives. But when we come to the great sea, the great ocean, it accepts all of that you know, without reservation. It accepts everything, just flows into it. And uh, the little stream, of course, is, is um, very happy and, and realizes its true nature at that time. Nice little story. There are lots of little stories like that for teaching kids. Um, But I found it useful myself because we sometimes think of our karma in a negative way. And and so that acceptance of our own karma, of our own rocks and boulders and whatever they are, the things, our little obstacles, if we can just accept them and and trust that that which is greater than us, um, when we encounter the great ocean, whether we have it in this life through an awakening experiencing experience or at the time of our death or both, um, that's not going to be quite so important. We just need to know that we should, we need to have just done the best we could, and that that will be accepted. You know. So I think that's an aspect of practicing sympathy, not judging ourselves and others. Um, we have, there are many points of view in the world. There are many different teachings, many different forms of knowledge. Um, and if we aren't careful, um, we get caught in the opposites of pitting one view against another. Of course we have views and of course we have things that we believe in and values. That's not a problem. But it's when we um, uh, judge others as being completely... Um, you know, irrelevant or shouldn't exist, even if they are something that's doing harm, it exists. You know, we have to accept that it exists. Um, so not creating opposites where they don't exist, being willing to um, just be with things as they are, you know. Um, if we hear some sad or upsetting news, of course it's our practice very much to put our hands in gasho and go to that place of sympathy in our hearts and express a wish to transfer the merit of our practice for the benefit of those beings. And I've said this before in my own experience, this is one of the most satisfying things you can do and really cuts through the distress. Of course we're human, we feel some distress, but just the sense of connection with whatever is going on, uh, whether it's the victims of some awful shooting or... um, the war that's happening or victims of climate disaster or anything, um, if we can put our hands in gusho and just be with that sense of loss or whatever we can to just be still even and transfer the merit of our practice, um, it takes us below the distress to a place where 
we are at one with these beings. And it's my my feeling that this is of greater help than just about anything we do. Of course, doing that might lead us to take some form of action or to make a donation, no problem. But it's got to come from that place of sympathy to really work, if I'm making sense there. Yeah. Um, and and there is a certain uh, peace within that, Yeah. that um, for me is very significant. Um, and in fact, you know, it, it goes, you know, the perpetrators of horrible things, yes, we see the horribleness, we don't agree with it, we do want to do everything we can to, to prevent it, to stop it. Uh, but somewhere in there, there can be sympathy for that suffering of that being as well. Uh, it doesn't mean we support what they're doing. Um, there's a very great uh, monk called Mahagosananda, who um, was a Cambodian monk who... Uh, did an awful lot of work in Cambodia uh, during and especially after the Khmer Rouge, the horrible stuff that happened with the Khmer Rouge. Was it in the 1970s in Cambodia, right? And he just went around practicing and encouraging loving kindness in the midst of this awful suffering. Um, But he had studied, um, you know, um, the teachings of Gandhi and even um, Martin Luther King and the nonviolent movements, you know, so he himself felt that if he just put himself um, in the midst of a situation um, in a nonviolent um, way, and of course he didn't wasn't foolish, didn't put himself in the middle of combat, but um, he was able to help so many people, yeah, um, and he very much um, was able to have that kind of sympathy with everybody. So even after the Khmer Rouge, you know, everything changed in Cambodia and they were defeated, um, of course there were people around who had been working with the Khmer Rouge, ordinary people, right, who had been informants or whatever, and um, and he was helping people restructure and, and build up communities again and so on. And uh, there were some people who, you know, were a bit resentful, like you're giving, you know, responsibility to these people who were helping the Khmer Rouge, you know, what are you doing? And he said, if that's all you see, you can't really find peace. You know? So he found a way of trusting people. You know, There's a delicate balance there. But he found a way of trusting people, practicing tenderness, practicing charity, practicing uh, benevolence and sympathy so that these people too who had done awful things or at least had supported awful things were able to find conversion, were able to heal, were able to get back into normal lives very interesting person so uh, he's written a lovely little book or actually transcriptions of his talks called Step by Step which is one of my little go-to Dharma books so there you have it these profound teachings uh, they are called wisdoms Um, wisdom isn't just about gaining knowledge Um, in fact in some ways it's being willing to step take a step into unknowing into some new territory occasionally right which really is an act of wisdom. So there you have it. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening.